Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, welcome everybody to our series, Modern Families. Glad that you are here. We're talking about uh, uh, family dynamics, parenting, all that good stuff from a biblical perspective. And last week, we kind of kicked off with by acknowledging a universal truth that I can say about everyone in this church and everyone uh, listening online or on the radio. And the first is this, you didn't choose your family. You get what you get and you don't get upset, okay? When it comes to families, there are families who are like all matchy-matchy. You ever see that? Like we're, there, you know, we're all on the same page. Uh, you know, take a look at that one, right? Look at this single mom and her modern kids, okay? Just... <laughs> Look at the look on her face, man. They walked in the Sears portrait studio and it was like, what happened? This gives new meaning to the word fro-yo, okay? That's like, yo, man to fro. Uh, this one is kind of fun. It's like, we're proud of Billy, but he can be shy, you know? Thanksgiving's coming. Maybe you have an awkward uncle who doesn't quite always fit in. Uncle Bill's going through a tough breakup right now. How about this one? Now, this you have to look closely, because on the surface, everything looks totally normal. Look in the bottom right. Wow, family can be suffocating. No matter how good your family was, your family wasn't perfect. That is the truth, and uh, there are no perfect families in this church. Some of us come from traditional two-parent homes. Some of us come from blended families, or you're in a second, or a third marriage, or your step-parent, or your grandparent raising, you know, kids, or you've got your adult kids back living in the basement. We understand it's very, very diverse, and uh, no perfect families, including those of your pastors. In fact, I want to make this very personal this morning. Did you know your pastors were once kids too? And do you ever wonder what the pastors looked like back in the day? I want to show you a couple of campus pastor photos, and you have to guess who this is. All right, take a look at this first one. Any idea which campus pastor this is? That is Pastor Peter from Nutley. What happened to the hair? Where'd it go? You know, it's like, wait a minute. How about this guy? You might be able to get this one, right? Yeah, that's Tom. That's Tom from Morristown. How did his head just get so big, though? The head kept growing. How about this one? This is kind of fun, right? Father, son. Now, look at the face of the father. And you see Pastor Mike became his father, right? That's amazing. Last one. See if you can guess who this handsome devil is, right? Look at him. Oh, that is Pastor Kyler in New Brunswick. But what you may not know is that he served as the model for Elf on a Shelf. Did you know that? It's incredible. Let's hear it for our campus pastors. We love you guys. Nice to know pastors were once kids too. And most of us are now parents. In fact, check this out. If you took all of the kids on the church staff. So took all of our church staff who are parents and totaled all our kids up. Do you know how many kids we have? 87 kids, okay? We're not a Mormon church, but we know a little bit <laughs> about kids and parenting, all that stuff. And that's why today I want to talk about surviving parenting because everybody in this room has influence on some level with a child. Some of you, you got a son or daughter all the way from toddlers to teens. Some of you are brothers and sisters or you're a teacher or you mentor kids grandmas, grandpas, step-parents, and I think we all could use a little bit of encouragement when it really comes to influencing children for the Lord. So our anchor verse today, I put this in your notes, is from Proverbs 22. It's the Old Testament book of wisdom. So all our campuses, let's read this out loud together. One big loud voice. Ready? Start children off on the way they should go, 
And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. How do you bring up kids in a culture like ours, right? There's a lot of wrong turns you could take, but how do you raise kids to love God, love others, respect themselves? And the writer of Proverbs suggests that the way you begin in early parenting, in those early years, will impact the kind of adult they end up as later on. In other words, he says, start children off on the way they should go. First five years. How many of you have young children under the age of five? Five or under? Raise your hand. Raise your hand, okay? I can tell. You're half asleep. You're like mainlining coffee. You're like, I'm trying to stay awake. I get that. When they're old, they will not turn from it. How many of you have children over the age of 18? Maybe, maybe they're in college. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Very good. Maybe they're adults themselves. They're living in your basement, right? I know. I, I, I get that. Um, last week, I showed you a chart that outlines the four stages of parenting. And if you think about it, it makes sense, broken up this way. The first five years are really the discipline years, and these are the days that are long and hard. Those of you with babies know this. You're not asking how to raise a, a tween. You're trying to survive your toddler. I totally get that. But you know what? It's just a season. You may be like, I may not survive this, but it's only five years until training, right? That's years five through 12, and this is really the heart of it, of what we're talking about in Proverbs. Train or raise a child in the way they go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. The training years are kind of the grade school uh, years where my kids are right now. My son, Dell, I introduced you to last week. He's nine. My daughter is 11. Nine and 11. Nine, one, one. That's the number Colleen and I would like to call sometimes uh, when we're dealing with our kids. But my daughter is on the doorstep of the training years, okay? Or the coaching, I should say. It's really middle school years. This is where you want to coach them. Think of it this way. In discipline years, it's just you're telling them what to do. Do this, don't do that, don't stick your finger in the socket, don't. Training is why, the why behind the what. Like, you know, now I tell myself, I was like, you, son, you never want to say a lady looks large. You don't, just don't do that. They have feelings. You don't want to, you're training them. But coaching is the how. You're teaching them actually how to think for themselves, how to be an adult, how to, you're actually letting go and you're letting them fail and you come alongside and you kind of coach them, a middle schooler or a high schooler, how to do something on their own, navigate relationships. And it's a very turbulent time, okay? Most parents barely survive this, but those who do attain the final stage of friendship, 18 and over. And just full disclosure, where I'm coming from, you need to know, the goal that Colleen and I have for our kids is not to be well-behaved children. That's not our goal, is to have well-behaved kids. It's just not our goal. Our goal is not to have materially successful adults who end up going to the best college or making the most money or have a high-end career. That's not our goal because it's not a biblical goal. That's actually a Western culture goal. But we want our children to be relationally rich, to have deep and abiding friendships with us and deep and abiding friendship with God. We want their faith in Christ to be their own, that they would have a personal revelation of God's love and affection for them And they would discover God's gifts, the way that he's like wired them, the talents that they have, that he's uniquely given them to play the role in the story he's telling with their life. So that's our goal for our kids is friendship, friendship with us and friendship with God. So Colleen and I now are parenting with this end in mind. I've got seven years more left, you know, with my little girl and we want to make them count. Same with my son. And so our goal is like when they, you know, go off to college or they enter their own single years or maybe even start families of their own that Colin and I will have raised them in such a way that they naturally want to spend time with us as friends because of the bonds that we're building right now. But you see, there's a lot of work to do before you get here. And what I have found is that most modern parents typically make two big mistakes. Some parents try to be friends with their kids down here. I want to be friends with my middle schooler. 
you cannot be friends with a middle schooler. He's a terrorist, okay? You don't negotiate with terrorists. There's not, and what happens is they try to navigate, because I want to be happy and I want to be friends and we're going to go all Oprah. But the reality is, if you try to be friends down here, what happens is the kids, we saw this last week, right? They kind of end up testing the limits and they don't feel a lot and they go off the rails here. And so what happens, second big mistake, is when a middle schooler or a high schooler starts rebelling, parents who don't discipline in here clamp down here. Now we're going to crack the whip. Now we're going to put restrictions on. Now we're going to discipline. And when you start disciplining here, it is over rover. Because kids intuitively understand it's at this time when the parents should be actually gradually letting go, actually giving them more permissive so that they can coach them through that. But that's the mistake a lot of modern parents make. They get these four stages mixed up. Well, today, I want to walk you through these four stages of parenting, not only surviving kids, but really thriving as a family. Because love and discipline look different at every age and stage. Last week, we uh, learned that love and discipline are the two main ingredients that God says every family needs to flourish. And in fact, if you missed last week's message or you say, I wish a friend could hear that, we're going to give you a free CD today on your way out. You can pick that up at uh, Guest Connections. We're going to give you a free CD. You can pass that on. Two things every family needs to know. But I want to give you examples, say practical tools about these four stages of parenting, how that looks. And and I'm going to share with you biblical uh, practices and principles that Colleen and I have tried with our guinea pigs, I mean our kids, uh, and, and how that has worked and not worked for us. But I, I begin this with a little fear and trepidation. I want to begin with this quote because I like what the 17th century poet John Wilmot famously said about raising children. John Wilmot said this. He said, before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. I was like, that about covers it, right? So let's start with those first five years, the discipline Years And uh, just, just kind of a fun thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, Colin and I had dinner uh, with a great family in our church, just stand-up family, core, core people, a few kids, and um, they've been married 10 years, and we were reminiscing. They said, boy, though, when we were newlyweds, we had twins, okay? In our first 10 months of marriage, we gave birth to twins, okay? And uh, they were constantly crying, colically, inconsolable. And there was a point in our first year of marriage that we stayed up for four nights straight. We didn't have sleep for four nights, and they said, we remember, we, were just, we weren't trying to discipline. We were just trying to survive and not kill each other. And, and the guy says, yeah, you know what I actually remember? He goes, our, our, and they started laughing. He said, the dehumidifier incident? Yeah, what's that? He went in there, and the kids were still crying, the, the two you know, twins colicky, the whole thing. And he, he, you know, four nights without sleep, he actually turned on the dehumidifier just to make noise so he wouldn't hear the kids. The kids were like, ah, they screamed even more. And he got so upset, right, like a guy, he actually punched the dehumidifier, and water goes everywhere, and the plastic goes, and it falls, and it's breaking. And he goes, and the wife, she, goes, she starts laughing, she goes, she ran in the room, and he was like, I'm out of control, I'm so sorry. He goes over to hug her, and she punches him in the throat. Oh, like, you're trying to kill my babies. And he's like, good punch, you know. And he goes, that's when we realized we were going to, we'd only survive if we realized we're on the same team and we're going to keep a sense of humor about this. This first stage of parenting, I get this. It is about survival. If you've got multiple little ones under the age of five, you got to keep it simple by creating what I call a family rhythm. A rhythm is simply the daily or weekly structure or organization necessary for your family to flourish. If you're taking notes, that's the first one. Create a family rhythm because your kids know you love them in in your heart. But the question is, they see that you love them in your calendar. The kids know we love them by the words we speak and the schedule we keep. And the reality is we live in the Northeast. 
It means we have incredibly busy, hectic lives. I get that. A lot of us have jobs. Once school starts, it's off to the races. But you need to love your kids through your calendar. And the pacing and structure, rhythm, is really an important part of an early family's life. What are those priorities in your weekly schedule at home that communicate love to your kids? In the Lucas home, uh, our family clock kind of revolves every day around dinner time. We pretty much eat dinner together three or four nights a week. Now, I don't travel. I get that. I have that going for me. That's a positive. Maybe you do. That's okay. But dinner time for us, that's where we set the family rhythm, where we're no longer just human beings doing all this stuff, but we're human doings. We just get to be human beings together, and we talk and connect over life. So here's our policy. We have a no screens at the table. like self. It's like an arms thing. It's like dinner time, and everyone puts their Kindle, their iPad, their phones. We all stack them in because dinner time is distraction-free, even if it's 15 minutes. And we debrief our day. And parents, you know this. What we stopped doing is in first grade, when my daughter reached first grade, we would say, you know, how was your day? Fine. What'd you learn? Nothing. You know, you know how that goes. <laughs> so we started a tradition when Chase entered first grade. We came, it's called 30-second story. And we actually have a little song that goes with it. We, we actually sing this, believe it or not. It's time for 30-second story. It's time for 30-second story. Here is Chase. And then you have to tell a story. <laughs> And they, we do this to this day. You have to tell a story in 30 seconds uh, that has like a conflict and a climax and then like some falling action. I was an English teacher. And you get extra points for humor or, you know, like a moral to the story. And it's kind of fun because it's the way our kids feel safe telling us about their day. So like my daughter will be like, okay, here's Chase. And she'll go, uh, well, there was this new girl in class and she came to the lunchroom and she, we saw her, she had her train. She's like looking around. She didn't know where to sit. And so I like kind of motioned over to her, but she wasn't sure. So I got up, daddy brought her over and she scooched in between me and Molly. And we're like, oh, you're amazing, Chase. Woo! Awesome parents, you know, but 30, 30 second story. Here is Dell. And uh, the way this works for my son is very important because he uses this time to tell on himself. He, he, he needs to let us know that things didn't go well, but he doesn't tell us directly. He uses the story. So he'll say like, well, you know, Jack, Jack Jack's this kid like sits at his table, right? You know, Jack, Jack was very naughty today. Really? Tell us what's the story. Well, he was sassy to the teacher. He said a four-letter word. And then for no reason, daddy, he put me in a headlock. He put me in a headlock. And we're like, really? No reason at all. Yeah, he said... No, nothing. What'd you say to him? Well, I, didn't say, I, just said, I just said you're being annoying, and then I punched him in the stomach. And then he puts me in this headlock, and I couldn't believe it. I put him in a headlock. It was like, okay, this is where we debrief and find out what's going on in our kids' hearts. And, and, and they, that's how we share that. So dinner time is a critical tradition to our family. It's priceless. It is where we connect. It's where we let down our hair. It's where we share what's really going on in our, in our kids' hearts, and we share life together. It's part of our family rhythm. So we guard that time jealously. The second discipline we've set in the kind of the discipline years is celebrating the Sabbath together. Sabbath, that, that is, we, we observe the Sabbath. We're, we're not a Jewish family, um, but actually in Exodus 20, Jesus, uh, we see in the Bible, the Sabbath is at the center of God's Ten Commandments. Here's how you're going to lead people. Look what it says. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it? You shall not do any work, neither watch, neither you nor who, nor your son or daughter. So the whole family, nobody works on this day. Nobody goes to school, just 24 hours with each other. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Sabbath is a spiritual boundary marker for families, okay? There's no work, there's no school. We simply rest and we unplug for 24 hours to get back to what's really important. See, Sabbath is the antidote to a disease called MFD, mad family disease. 
What you see nowadays is parents running everywhere. Mom's the taxi, running ragged on weekends. We got sports, we got games, we got traveling teams, we got music rehearsal, we got plays, we got, I get it, it's totally crazy. But here in New Jersey, I see with parents, it's kind of like an arms race to see how busy your kid can be. I'm like at, you know, like wrestling practice, and it's like, oh, you should see after this, we're driving all the way down to Baltimore, then we got to fly off the bus for this travel thing, and then we got to, it's just like, that's insane, all right? It creates this performance mentality in kids. And so Colleen and I have just decided we're going to go counterculture because our kids do the usual stuff. We had two hockey games yesterday, a play and rehearsal and all that. But we observe the Sabbath. There are 24 hours every week in our calendar where we focus just on being a family and doing very analog things like going to the park or taking a hike together in the woods or showing our kids how to carve a pumpkin or we're going to catch a snake or whatever, whatever we do. Our Sabbath is intentionally analog. We unplug because as parents, modern parents, we live in this constant state of distraction. I remember being at a playground because we're younger and we're like pushing the kids on the swings and you've probably seen this, you know, everyone stands behind us and swing more, you know, you can do that for about 10 minutes and then you're like, I'm going to go out of my mind. And you do the swinging, but I was funny because I looked at the other parents and nobody's watching the kids. They're all just doing this. They're just texting. They're checking their, you know, Facebook thing. It's like put down the phone, step away from Facebook, okay? Because the idea is we spend time with our kids, but we're not actually present to them in the ways that matter most, okay? So, so the idea is love pays attention, and that's what the Sabbath is about. Enjoy this time because this first five years goes very quickly. I understand it can be boring and monotonous, but the Sabbath is not supposed to be. The Sabbath is God's gift to you. It's his gift against mandated Gets slavery, basically. It's what they got on the way out of Egypt. He's like, I don't want you to ever have that again. I don't want you to be in slavery. So I'm going to mandate margin in your schedule because I know you. You work six days a week. Some of you work two jobs. I know you. There are requests and there's emails and there's phone calls and the text and it's constantly going and I'm going to say stop. And I'm going to give you a gift for 24 hours. But some of us turn this into a chore. Now, for me, uh, my Sabbath, you know, for Jewish people, Sabbath, you know, sun up, sundown, Friday, uh, you know, or Saturday. Um, for Christians, a lot of times Sabbath, we think Sunday. But my Sabbath is on Friday because I work late on Thursday night. So I, I sleep in on, uh, on Friday morning typically. And it's cool because I'm typically around when the kids get, get let out of school for the week. And early on, my kids knew this. They, they know, oh, 3 o'clock when school's out on Friday, it's Sabbath time. We get daddy, he plays with us, and there's no more liquid. Boo, liquid. He is here to play with me. We're going to shoot baskets. You know, we're going to take the dog out. We're going to build Legos. We're going to go for a bike ride. So my kids early on began looking forward to Sabbath because we taught them. We said the Sabbath is God's gift to our family because mom and dad, we work really hard five, six days a week, but Sabbath is special. So around first or second grade when when Chase and Dell were younger, it kind of clicked with them. And it was kind of funny because one Friday they come ripping out the doors. It's three o'clock and I'm standing there in the yard with the other parents and all the kids. And they come flying out and they go, daddy, it's Sabbath time, you know? And the other parents are like, I thought he was like a pastor. I guess he's a rabbi. I don't, you know, I don't know what that is. But the Sabbath is kind of, we orient our family rhythm around it and we observe it religiously because the world eats it up. It helps us refocus on reconnecting with each other and with God. And obviously at the center of that is we go to church. And you know what? That's a big deal because it's a sacrifice. It is a pain. I understand for some of you to be here. When you've got young kids, sometimes you've got to be like a hardcore pagan to get them to go to church, right? You're like going in with the Cheerios, like, get in the van, you know, no grace. I get that. But whatever sacrifice it takes, parents, it is worth it. Statistically speaking, 
the most significant predictor of your child's spiritual development, how they end up with a faith of their own as an adult, is how committed the parents were not only to going to church together, but serving together as a family at church, okay? It's because that's when kids actually see behind the scenes. Is this faith authentic or is it something we just check off? So understand, at Liquid, we don't waste your time on Sundays. We all have families and places to go, I get that, but we're building something here. So with Liquid Kids or Student Ministries, our goal is very simple. It's that the hour you spend here on Sunday would be the best hour of your kid's week and the most helpful of yours. Because you're not just learning how to be a better mom or dad, you're, learning, you're getting practical teaching how to be a follower of Christ. And as that's happening, your kids are, are, are getting the same kind of teaching there and they're making right choices. And you may have noticed, every year we intentionally do a spiritual training campaign that the whole family experiences, like praying together for the last 30 days, right? That was something we just did and we did it at all levels because we believe the family that prays together actually stays together. I was talking with the mom just in the lobby. She said, P.S., she goes, I saw my, uh, my high school son, and I went in his closet. He had his God box, and I thought, there's nothing in it. I opened it up. I don't judge you. She opened it up, and there's all these prayers in there. She goes, I had no idea. We believe this is where they're going to get that. Where else are they going to get this? Where are they going to read the Bible? School? Is that going to happen? The philosophy of our church is to partner with parents on Sundays, on the Sabbath, to lodge an anchor in the heart of your kids so that when they grow up and they start a family of their own, their faith will be their own. And they'll actually have tools that they learned and tried out with you. And so you're not just giving them an inheritance, you're giving them a legacy. See, the parents, is, Sabbath is serious stuff, parents. God puts at the center of the Ten Commandments, and I'm not telling you this because I'm a pastor, you're like, you gotta go to church. But where else are you gonna have these conversations? Where are your kids gonna learn to serve the poor with other people who do it out of a passion for Christ? We have a very short window in those first five years and another in the next season to Train up a child in the way they should go. That's what the writer of Proverbs is getting at. Start children off on the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't turn from it. Establish those rhythms, set that calendar, guard it, protect the process, and realize it's about priorities. A priority is simply a pre-decision about how we're going to spend our time. It's not reactive. It's a pre-decision about what's important and what we're going to sacrifice to do. And that leads to the training years, 5 through 12, because I don't want you, this is kind of funny, because I don't want you to get the impression like, you know, we've got all these rules in the Lucas house. It's not, not it's the opposite. We don't have, you know, last week we talked about perfectionist parenting where there's a lot of rules and all-star expectations and harsh punishment if you fall short. Kids need to know, however, in the training years, what's expected. And that's why you've got to communicate clear expectations in the training phrase. I was visiting this one family, and uh, in the kitchen, I noticed this list of rules on the refrigerator. I'm looking, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. There's like 20 rules. You know, the moment they get up, you got to brush your teeth, and you make your bed, and then you come down here, and then you get the pancakes. And then I see on the other part of the refrigerator, there's another, you know, like there's like 50 rules. I'm like, you guys can't name the Ten Commandments. you got 50 rules for these kids, you know, who are like six, seven years old. In our house and in the training stage, I'm a very big fan of keeping things simple. So in the Lucas house, we only have three rules. We have zero tolerance for three things. Dishonesty, kids know they got to tell the truth every time. Lying's unacceptable. Defiance, defiance, notice it's not disobedience because honestly, you got to pick your battles. It's like if you're like, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, and they don't brush their teeth. I don't want to fight that battle. But if you're defiant about it, no, it's a spirit thing. So it's got to be out and out defiance. And then disrespect, we're like, you have to show respect to every adult you meet and you have to show respect to your brother or your sister. And I understand, those, those of you who have, like, multiple siblings, this can be a struggle. you got to be creative. 
Um, I like how this mom came up with a novel idea to get her kids to get along. Um, the get along shirt. Put it on, you know. Speaking of parents who are nailing the parenting thing, look at this note that a mom put up on her refrigerator. Want today's Wi-Fi password? Make your beds, vacuum downstairs, walk the dog, you know? Clear expectations. Like I said, we established basically three in our house. Don't be dishonest, disrespectful, or defiant, and the rest is kind of details. And it's funny because we're driving one day, and my son, he's like in the back of the minivan, and he's like, he's like, Daddy, I thought of a fourth. And I was like, I think three is good. He's like, no, four. And I was like, that's unusual. He wants to add a rule. And he's like, yeah, we should never worship the devil. And I was like, okay, we'll add a fourth. Dishonesty, defiance, disrespectful, devil worship. We don't, that's how we roll, okay, in the Lucas house. It's like, and that is, it's, we keep it, try to keep it simple, right? Um, but the challenge comes in the training years when those rules get broken, okay? And that's when you have to discipline kids by correcting them with compassion, okay? Yes, there are consequences for disobedience. But how we frame that discipline makes all the difference. And let's be honest. I'll be honest with you. There have been plenty of times I have disciplined my kids out of anger. There have been plenty of times where I have said something that I instantly regret. Like, why did you do that? What's wrong with you? Like, I'm, you know, attacking the character of the kid, not what they do. What's wrong with you? Ah, oh, I want to take that back, right? We've all made mistakes in correcting our kids. And in the heat of battle, it's hard to keep your cool. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, he says, fathers do not, what's the word? Exasperate, discourage, frustrate your children. Instead, bring them up in the, here's the word, training and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is addressed to all parents, but notice Paul speaks first to fathers. I told you this last week, dads. Our words weigh 500 pounds. And I get it. When your kid disobeys, my nat- our natural default is, as, as, as fathers, as men, is to crush the rebellion, right? We're not going to have it. But when you correct your kids, you have to have compassion or you will crush their spirit. They will be exasperated. They will be frustrated. Their heart, they will comply with your rules because you're crushing it but their heart will grow hard and they'll get bitter. So you win the battle, but you lose their heart. So you can't just ground kids out of frustration or use the wooden spoon. I'm going to take away your video games or or go to your room every single time. You actually have to take a step back and turn to the gospel to correct them with compassion the way God corrects you when you you sin. Think about that because that's our relationship with God. Our father, God, we're his children. What happens when we disobey, when we sin? You know what the gospel says? The gospel says that in our sin, our father's heart was broken, but he sided with us against our sin. In other words, out of love, God said, oh, no, Tim, I see your disobedience. I see Tim's sin. You know what? There are going to be consequences for your sin, Tim, but I love you and I accept you, and I'm actually going to remove your sin from you and put it on my son, Jesus. He lived the only perfect life. He's going to die in your place so that you could be restored to relationship with me. That's what God does when we sin. He says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to help you through this. And so as a demonstration that we see the cross, right? This is is where good theology counts. Think about this, guys. There are consequences for sin on earth, but we're never supposed to take that out on the kid. We're supposed to separate and side with our kid against their sin. Let me give you the example. So when my son says, you know, you know, and then he was, you know, and then I said this, and then I punched him in the stomach, all right? Instead of getting angry, the world would tell us, here's how you discipline. You say, you know, what did I tell you about touching him? I told you if you touch him, one more, that's it. No more video games. So we instantly give him a punishment that is completely unrelated to the offense, right? Instead, the gospel says, you say, oh, no, Dell, I am so sorry that happened. Oh, no. 
you know what, what we said is going to happen. We promised what would happen if you touched other kids. Now you're not going to have a play date this weekend. Oh, no. No play. No! I was going to play Minecraft with Michael. No! And then I go, no, I know. Ah! It really does pain me. Ah! I say, I'm so sorry. I, I know that is hard, and I'm so sorry. But you know what? I know, I know you can do better, man. I believe in you. You can do better next time. You see what's happened there? I'm siding with my son against his sin. It's a subtle shift, but it's an important one because my son isn't the problem. My child needs to, he's my child, and I love him with all my heart. That's how God feels about you. The problem is his sin. And so when you separate the two out of love, you take a posture of compassion. You could say, oh, no, you told a lie. You lied. You know what happens when we lie in this house. And it communicates to your son or daughter that you reject their sin, but you still accept them. You still embrace them. Does that make sense? That's what your heavenly father does with you all the time. No matter how badly you blow it, no matter what mistakes you make, or even when we openly defy God, God responds with grace, with love and forgiveness. He condemns our sin, but he loves us. And scripture says the Lord disciplines those he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as what? As his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Again, biblical discipline doesn't just mean punishment. Discipline in the Bible means to teach and to train. And so a loving parent will allow consequences in love, not out of harshness, not out of anger. They will correct with compassion. And that will get you to the coaching years. When they turn 12, they enter middle school, the hormones start going on, and so I'm going to give you a very spiritual principle for the coaching years. Are you ready? Don't freak out. Okay, I know, very spiritual. Okay, I got this, you know, where, it's like, where is this in the Bible? When, I don't have a verse for you. When they get to middle school, it is all about keeping open lines of communication. Colleen taught me this when, when our daughter Chase turned 10. She actually took me aside. She said, Tim, can we go out for coffee? I'm like, oh, am I in trouble? And we go out for coffee. And she goes, no, no, just listen, listen. She goes, I just want to talk to you because things are going to be changing as the kids hit puberty. And I was like, oh, she's going to have the, you know, the talk. And I was like, realized she's having the talk with me. And she, <laughs> and she goes, I don't want you to freak out. She goes, because there's going to be hormones in this house for the next few years, and we've got to keep open lines of communication. Do you understand this? And I was, of course, like indignant. I was like, of course I understand this. You know, what kind of father do you think I am? And she goes, you totally freak out about this stuff. You get totally weird around, like, puberty and sex talk and that stuff. And, and she's right. Because my, my house... My house growing up was a little bit more uptight about that stuff. We didn't say S-E-X, and, you know, we had a talk. I didn't even remember. And Colleen intuitively understands. She's magic. The stuff she gets fifth-grade girls to tell her is stunning, okay? She's like, you know, she's been with them all the way through brownies and all that, so she'll be, like, driving these girls to, like, basketball or play practice, and there'll be four middle school girls in the backseat of the car, and they'll chat, you know, giggling and texting away, and she'll be like, okay, girls, I want to know all the dirt. Who likes who? And they'll be like, oh. Jimmy Johnson totally tried to kiss Molly. Blah, 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 blah. And she goes, as long as I look out of the windshield, so we don't make eye contact, these cars are a very important place. They're back here, but I'm looking out the windshield. They spill it all out, and no matter what they say, I don't freak out. I was like, are you serious? She goes, yeah, you won't believe it. And so sure enough, they will tell me. They'll be like, Mrs. Lucas, guess what? One of the middle school boys went to his brother's high school party, and the cops came. And I'm like, what did you say? She said, oh, that's interesting. You girls want cupcakes? She, did, she doesn't freak out no matter what they say. She never reacts. She just files it in the mom file. And so they don't know any better. 
And they like tell her all this stuff. And, and she, I've seen, I've been in the car where they're like, Mrs. Lucas, do boys really care if you shave your armpits? You know, I'm like, what the, you know? Carl's like. And she coaches them through this stuff. And it's amazing to me. And Carl's like, Tim, you can't freak out because listen to this. The most important thing in this stage, tweens and teens, is that they know they can trust you. That word trust is critical. I want to share with you a provocative quote from the book Parenting Beyond Your Capacity by Reggie Joyner. Look at this. Would you agree or disagree with this? He said, too often, parents think their primary goal is to get their children to follow the rules. But during the formative and teenage years, it is actually more important for parents to earn trust with the child than for the child to earn trust with the parents. Wow. Is that, would you agree or disagree? Some of you are like, wait a minute. Me earn trust, they got to earn trust with me, right? I, when I read this, I thought it was backwards. And the, and the idea here is at the coaching stage, okay, yes, they, of course they have to earn trust with you. But at the coaching stage, it's like a judo move. It's kind of flipped around. It is actually more important for parents to prove they can be trusted than for a child to earn trust. Because in the middle school years, they're starting to test brave new waters. And it's all new. And they're trying out language and they're trying out identity, what's in and out of bounds. And more than ever, they need a coach, a trusted adult that they can be confident is going to be cool and composed and actually consistent in their response and not fly off the handle or freak out. And that's the key to effective coaching. Think about it. When you've had coaches, you don't trust a coach who, who you know is going to jump all over your mistakes or criticize your soft spots. Say, so what are you, what's wrong with you? you know, coaching is about coming alongside the child and asking the right questions. And this is critical in middle school and high school because developmentally, they're out of the discipline and tra- training season. And they need a parent who they can trust, who won't freak out and help them navigate the very murky water of adolescence. Because guess what? They're going to hear about a party where there was alcohol. They're going to hear about how so-and-so's brother had pot on him. And parents, I guarantee you this. At some point, you're going to read a rogue text on their phone and be like, what the? You're going to see a post online that you're not going to like. And what you do in that moment, whether you overreact or don't freak out, will be decisive for your child deciding whether they can trust you going forward or not with these kind of conversations. Colleen instinctively knows this. She's kind of my coach now in keeping open lines of communication. I was taking uh, my daughter, picking her up from a middle school event a few weeks ago, and uh, she gets in the car, you know, typical thing, right? Gets in the car, hey, dad, you know, and she immediately starts texting, and I go, hey, what's going on? And she's just texting away and everything, and then she goes, ew. And I go, you know, what is it? What is it? And she goes, she goes, oh, no, no, it's nothing. I go, come on, tell me. And she goes, Ugh. my friend is shopping for something icky with her mother. And I'm like, okay, what is it? What's it? And she's like, no, it's nothing, nothing. And I was like, what is it? You can tell me, you know, just keep your eyes forward, you know. And she giggles, and she starts kind of blushing. She goes, all right, if you must know, Dad, uh, she's shopping for a training bra. She's getting a training bra. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, my knuckles start getting very tight, you know, on the wheel. I'm like, I just walked into this, you know. And she's like... She starts giggling kind of, and all I hear, I'm getting nervous, and all I hear is Colleen's voice, don't blow it. Do not freak out, Tim. You have one shot at this. And so I'm very nervous, and, and I don't, so I don't say anything. Now my mouth is going dry, and so she's like, she kind of like looks over at me to see if everything's okay, and I just keep looking straight ahead, and I just go, a, a training bra? Wow, that's cool. <laughs> what am I saying? What am I saying? I don't, what am I, you know, I'm like, 
And she looks at me, she goes, not really. And I go, no, 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 you guys are becoming young women. This is, oh, that sounds so weird. And so I didn't know what to do. And I just remember Colleen saying, if you don't know what to say, just ask more questions. And so I'm like, do you have other friends getting a training bra? (laughs) What am I saying? What is happening? And she's like, dad. She's like in horror. And now I'm nervous. When I get nervous, I start talking even more. And I'm like, oh, no, these are, these are important milestones, you know, training bras and periods. Does anybody have their period? Yeah. What's happening? Put it back. I sw- this is not embellished. Literally, her mouth dropped. And we're like a block away. I'm just looking straight ahead. And we pull in the driveway. And I'm like, well, we're home. She just runs in the house. She runs in the house. And Colleen's at the door. She's like, hey, what? The, where? What happened? Where's she, where's she going? Such a hurry. Is everything okay? And I was just like, yep, just asking questions, you know, <laughs> not freaking out, you know, right? I did my best. I'm just telling you, middle school, there's no, there's no advice I can give you for this, okay? There's no verse, okay? Don't freak out pretty much covers it, okay? I, and I'm telling you this because I make mistakes, but I'm in the game, I'm trying. I'm, a, I'm, a t- I'm keeping that conversation open. Then we can, and then it's time for 30 second story. It's time for 30 second story. Here's dad. Dad's weird. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. I was in a car and, you know, those of you who make it past this and you get to high school. Okay. This final principle is, is the most important and it covers really all the stages. When you have conflict and you will, you need to learn to win hearts, not arguments. Can we say this together? Win hearts not arguments. As teenagers advance through high school, they will get strong opinions, and now they can reason with, well, they don't really reason, but they, but they can push back. They say, that's unfair. Why can't I stay out till 11 when Ryan got to stay out till 12 on Saturday, okay? You are a hypocrite. You don't understand. Slam the door, right? Now, when they were five, it was very easy to win that argument, because it's like, it's time for bed, and you pick up their body, and you put them, you know, in bed, right? When they're 10, it's like, okay, a little bit heavier, but I'm going to take Nintendo, and threats kind of still work. But when they're 17, what happens when they say, no, I don't think so, and they grab their keys and walk out the door? How do you parent a 17 or 18-year-old? How do you discipline them? In my day, you know, you got grounded, okay? But grounding never works. I had friends who were, like, grounded for six years. They're like, they just... And you know how this works, right? Like, you see the... You know, I call you on something. Hey, we talked about text limits. You exceeded your text limit. You know, I'm taking away your cell phone. That's fine. I'll do my laptop. I'm taking away your laptop. Great. Can't do homework now. I'm taking away your Facebook. I don't do Facebook, Dad. Mom does Facebook, okay? We do some of this stuff. Your control diminishes as young adulthood increases. And you can try the shame and the guilt with teenagers, but they smell it a mile away, and the walls go up. Look at this, look at this Dad. I love this picture. He punished his high school daughter by making her wear his face to school. <laughs> look at his face. Look at her face. He made her wear that T-shirt with his face, try me, to high school. Sometimes you forget that we can win the argument and force compliance with our house rules, but you will lose your son or daughter's heart in the process. See, every family fights, but there's a world of difference whether you fight with someone or you fight for someone. See, when you fight with someone, walls go up and relationships unravel. You discipline out of anger. You don't try to understand them. That's what happens. The walls go up. But when you fight for your son or daughter, the walls come down and relationships deepen. You get to the heart. And some of you, the big, the big thing is to about take a step back here when things get heated in your house. But never give in. Because even though they slam the door, I hate you, they need to know that you're going to stay in the game and you're going to fight for their heart. 
They may close the door, but don't you close the door. Even if your marriage falls apart, dad, you keep fighting for a relationship with your daughter. Even if your own son gets in trouble or rebels in high school, you don't just drop the hammer and walk away. When your child breaks trust, and they will, you need to show them that you can still be trusted to fight for their heart and do everything to restore that relationship. I remember my senior year of high school. I was 18 years old, going to college, a little bit nervous about that, and I was playing hockey at the time. I was playing this hockey game, and uh, I was, again, you know, I was a boy trying to become a young man, so you act all tough, and your friends are there. And we were playing against some guys who actually had college-age players. And during the hockey game, uh, things got kind of nasty. The other team had some goons there kind of like physically manhandling us and all that. And we got kind of into a scrap, where there's a lot of pushing and shoving and yelling. And this one guy got up in my face and kind of tried to intimidate me. And I'll never forget that because he slashed my stick, and I dropped it. And he just goes, yeah, that's what I thought, boy, and walks away. You know? And at that moment, something like just came over me, and I was just like, what would you say, monkey face? He had to be a big nose. I just like, right, you know, it's like, and he just turned around and goes, what? He's just like, mm, and it was on. And we went, just kind of, you know, and there's sticks and flesh. And he took his glove and he shoved it in my face and gave me what you call a face wash, like, and it smelled so bad. And I just, I lost it. Guys, I totally lost it. I'm not, this is not a glamorous moment. This is like a failed me. I failed other people. I started screaming. All my buddies are there. They're like, kill him, kill him. I was like, you mother, blah, 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 blah. I was saying things. I will kick you, blah, blah. I will kill, kill you, I'll kill you. And we actually started swinging at each other. It was just a total disaster. And my friends are like, come on, yeah, I can kill him, all that. And so I start going, to, and I remember, I go over the penalty box, and I look up in the crowd, and I was like, oh, except I see my dad. I didn't realize he was at the game. And my dad's standing there in the third row, and he's got his arms folded. And we made eye contact as I went to the penalty box, and then he just went like this, went. And just walked off the stands into the parking lot. And I went to the penalty box, and, I, and I've told you, my dad was a righteous man. Never smoked, never drank, and never heard him curse. And I just blew it. And so the rest of the game goes on. I meet him in the parking lot afterwards, and we get in the car, you know, without kind of talking, and we just get in. He starts. I just go, Dad, I'm so sorry. Are you angry? He says, no. Starts the car, starts driving. He just goes, I'm disappointed. Oh, I wish he had whipped me, you know. There was nothing worse because I respected my dad. And his disappointment. And so we drove home silent. And I'm like, I'm like, surely this is going to ground me. That's it. Hockey's over. He's going to be like, you can't go out with those guys anymore. They're total corrupt influence. And instead, he pulls the car into the diner. He says, come on, let's get something to eat. And so we go down and sit in a booth, and it's awkward. And I'm like, Dad, I'm just so sorry. I, I lost it. And he said, don't stop. He goes, Tim, I don't know who that was for, but I hope that wasn't for me. He goes, son, I want you to know this, that you have nothing to prove in my eyes. You don't have anything to prove in my eyes or your mother's eyes. I love you, I believe in you, and I know that you are better than that. And over our cheeseburgers and onion rings, we talked about what happened and how I was kind of nervous about, you know, leaving high school and going away to college and all that kind of stuff. But he got to the heart, the pride, the insecurity driving my behavior. And he not only forgave me, he restored that relationship. When we got home, he didn't tell mom, guess what Tim did, you know, my respect grew for him that day. Because I always knew I would be able to trust my dad even when I failed spectacularly. That was 25 years ago. 25 years later, I have a family of my own. And that's my son, Dell, and the man he's named after, my father, Dell. And Tim and Dell and Dell were friends. We're friends. See, if you can navigate the discipline and the training and the coaching by the grace of God, one day you have a shot at friendship.
you got a shot at this. But you need the Holy Spirit every stage in between. And you've got to learn to win hearts, not just arguments, if you're going to get this payoff here, because the ultimate goal is friendship with you and with God. And that's why you've got to discipline, you've got to train, you've got to coach. So even when they're old, they won't turn from it. Friendship is possible, it is. But like any relationship, it takes hard work. And you know what? That's what your Heavenly Father offers you. He offers you his friendship and the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his closest followers, he said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Let's read this together. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Think about Jesus, our ultimate model example, our savior. Jesus spent three years with his disciples. Do you know what disciple means? The disciplined ones. And he trained them. He coached them in ministry. He loved them like brothers. And then he laid down his life. And over the three years, he says, you know what? You're no longer my servants. You're my what? You're my friends. Friends is the ultimate goal of Jesus Christ. He says, everything I learned from my father, I'm going to pass on to you. And that's why you should never lose hope, parents. Because if you're here today and your family's struggling or you're like just surviving, through Jesus Christ, you have access to the father, the only perfect parent you will ever know. And he's called you friends, so the pressure's off. He can actually teach you and coach you and provide everything you need to be the parent that your child deserves. So have hope. It's never too late. I am so concerned right now that some of you are, are like, you're looking back at your parenting and you see the gaps and the mistakes that you made. And you say, oh, I wish I knew that then because my son or daughter, maybe they're rebelling. Or Don't fall. That's the enemy whispering that. Too late. It's never too late to fight for their heart. Think about it. When you sin or rebel against God, does God give up fighting for you? Never. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The boy takes the family fortune and he blows it in Vegas. And what does dad do? Dad watches out the window every day, scanning the horizon, waiting for his son to come home. And when he does, what does he do? Is he wave his finger in judgment and say, I told you, now you're a He wraps his arms around his son and he kisses him and he hugs him and he puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger. He corrects him with compassion and he restores their relationship. And he says, this son of mine was lost. Now he's found, my boy. That's the heart of God. He specializes in restoring broken relationships. So it is never too late for your family to ask for help where you have problems, but you have to ask Abba for it. And that's how we want to end today's service. I want to invite you, if you're facing problems or issues in your family, to come forward so our prayer teams can pray with and for your family. As your church family, we want to stand with your family and ask our Father God to help, to bless your kids, your parents, your relationships. Maybe they're not even here in this room. But at all of our campuses, our prayer teams are going to come forward this time with our campus pastor, And they're going to stand here at the altar. And when we dismiss, you come forward and we're going to pray for you. Maybe there's a family member that you need God to touch. And you're like, they're not even here. Perfect. You come forward. Maybe you're part of a blended family. And you're like, man, I wish it were that linear. I've got a lot of dynamics. I need wisdom. You come forward. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and discernment. But maybe this is a moment for you to stop beating yourself up and throw yourself on the grace of your loving father. And he gives you the wisdom and the truth that you need to be the parent that your family deserves. Let's do this. I want to bow our heads in prayer, all of our campuses. I'm going to pray for you. And then as we dismiss, you come forward for prayer. Father God, we thank you. Lord, you specialize in setting the lonely in families. You have the heart of a father, loving and true. There is grace, God, for our mistakes. And Lord, you accept us as we are. But you love us too much to let us stay there. And so we thank you for your truth. 
God, you can change any relationship. You can restore broken family dysfunctions, Lord. You can give new patterns and and new marriages, God. I pray right now that you would release your Holy Spirit in this place. God, in our church family, we want to be a functional one, not a perfect one, but one where the Holy Spirit has full reign to do work at the deepest place of the heart. And so, Father, right now, would you anoint our prayer teams, the campus pastor in this room, even as we do ministry and speak into people and weep with people and pray for them, God, that they would leave here feeling encouraged, full of hope, full of faith, full of grace. We ask that in the name and power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everybody said together, Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.